0: The National Archives podcast series, The Real Little Dorrit, presented by David Thomas. Thank you all very much for coming. What I'm going to be doing today is talking about it's called The Real Little Dorrit, and it's really looking at how Dick, Dickens' fictionalised account of life in the Marshalsea prison compares with the reality of life in debtors' prisons <laughs> in the early 19th century. So can I just ask, who's been watching Little Dorrit on the television? Not bad. And who's read the book? I'll try not to give away the ending for those of you who are watching it on the television. So let's start. And this is the account of the admission register to the Marshalsea prison, which is one of our records. And really the big event in Dickens' life is in 1824 1824, when his father John Dickens was arrested for debt and imprisoned in the Marshalsea. And as a result, Charles, who was only 12 at the time, had to go and work in the famous blacking factory off the Strand where he stuck labels on bottles for six shillings a week. What's interesting about this is that... Dickens' family's disgrace wasn't known about in Charles Dickens' time. He told his wife and he told his friend John Foster, and he writes about it in an unpublished fragmentary autobiography. But nobody during Dickens' lifetime knew that his family had been sort of, you know, put in, in the Marshalsea. And so when we read Little Dorrit now, we can see that Mr. Dorrit was, you know, a, a fictionalized representation of Dickens' father. And that little Dorrit, in some ways, was was Dickens himself. I mean, there are some differences, which you might be able to figure out. But generally, generally, but at the time, at the time it was published, nobody knew. And it's only when Foster publishes his biography of Dickens, after Dickens' death, that people learn about this awful secret. That's the old Marshalsea. See, that was where John Dorrit was imprisoned and the Dorrit family lived. Prisons were a major theme in Dickens' writing. If you read sketches by Boz, there's this famous description of a a visit to the condemned cell in Newgate. And his final unfinished novel, Edwin Drude's got a scene in the condemned cell as well. And in between, he describes the burning of Newgate in Barnaby Rudge, Fagin's Last Night in the Condemned Cells, and the storming of the Bastille in A Tale of Two Cities. But today I'm going to focus on debtors' prisons. An imprisonment for debt was a recurring theme in Dickens' writing. In his first novel, Mr Pickwick is the defendant in an action for breach of promise of marriage brought by his landlady, Mrs Bardell. She had misunderstood Mr Pickwick's announcement that he was going to employ a servant and believed he was offering to marry her. This is an easy mistake to make, happens all the time. Pickwick loses the case and, believing that he'd suffered a miscarriage of justice, refuses to pay damages and costs. As a result, he's sent to the Fleet Prison. In David Copperfield, Mr. Micawber, another representation of Dickens' father, um, is imprisoned in the King's Bench. Little Dorrit's a much more ambitious novel. It's a prison novel. It opens, and, and this is where they get it slightly wrong on the televised version, but it opens with this mysterious scene in Marseille prison. Little Dorrit, as you know, is born in the Marshalsea, and all the characters in that novel live under the shadow of debt and imprisonment. I mean, everybody in that novel is some, somehow touched by that. Dickens was so deeply affected by his father's disgrace, it really had a sort of profound psychological impact on him, so much so that he can't bring himself to write Little Dorrit until after his father's dead. And he can't even bring himself to visit the old Marshalsea prison until after he's finished the novel, in that sort of awkward period between finishing the novel and having it published, he goes to make a final visit to the, the Marshalsea, But he can't bring himself to do that between the day his father was released and, and then. But even after he writes Little Dorrit, he go, he's still interested in the subject. And in 1867, he publishes in, um, House, and in all the year round uh, three articles by a commercial traveller who got into trouble and was in prison for debt. This is a genuine account. It's not a fictionalised account of what happens. So what was imprisoned for debt about and... Why was it done? Well, the idea dates back to the 13th century when the crown had the right to put people in prison if they owed them money. I mean, just as it does today, you read about little old ladies being put in prison for not paying their council tax. Well, it had the same right in the 13th century. And in the 13th century, it gave that right to lay individuals so that lay individuals could use the crown's right to imprison people if they owed them money. This wasn't a very sensible thing to do because obviously if you owe somebody money and they put you in prison, well, you lose your job and you can't pay your debts. And this is what happens to Dickens' commercial traveller. He gets sacked soon after he's admitted to prison. So why did people do it? What were the reasons for putting people in prison for debt? One obvious reason is malice. People owed people money and, you know, the creditors were very malicious and they did it in order to get revenge on their debtors. But you can't measure this because every person who's ever written a book about being in prison for debt says, it wasn't my fault, Gov. It was all the fault of the bank who lent me the money. This is a kind of familiar theme which you can read about in the papers today. So malice is a possibility but a hard one to test. In other cases, debtors really did have money and they just refused to pay their debts. There's a case of a prisoner who was in Southampton Jail in 1844. He'd been there since 1814... And he had some property and he refused to pay to sell the property to pay his debts. That's it. I'm not paying. Well, you can stay in prison. Oh, all right. And he stayed there for 30 years and eventually dies in prison, having refused to sell this property, which would have cleared his debts and got him freed. Another reason is, is simple first mover advantage, because often people owed lots of money to different people. If you could get them arrested first, there was a good chance you'd get paid. And all the other creditors could go hang. So I think people tried to get people get debtors arrested early on so they could get their debts paid. And Dickens' commercial traveller was arrested by a tailor to whom he owed £34. The tailor managed to get ten pounds off him, and eventually he had him arrested. And once in White Cross Street, it turned out that his total debts were about £340 owed to three or four creditors, each of whom was trying to get a share of the man's assets. But the um the most significant reason, I believe, for putting people in prison for debt was, it was a way of putting pressure on their friends and relatives to pay the debt so they'd be released. And creditors believe that the potential disgrace of having a son or father or daughter in the Marshalsea would encourage their parents or children to open their wallets. The, the commercial traveller only got out of prison because his father-in-law guaranteed his debts. And in the Pickwick Papers, Dickens describes the behaviour of a fellow prisoner in the sheriff's office ha- sheriff's officer's house, while Mr Pickwick is waiting to go to the fleet. Give me a sheet of paper, crookie, said Mr Price to the attendant, who in dress and a general appearance looked something between a bankrupt glazier and a drover in a state of insolvency, and a glass of brandy and water. Crookie, do you hear? I'm going to write to my father, and I must have a stimulant, or I shan't be able to pitch it strong enough into the old boy. The process of, of sending a person to Odessa's prison is what Dickens describes. A creditor swears out an affidavit before a court claiming that he or she was owed money. The court could then issue a writ called a capias ad satisfaciendum, known as a casa in Dickens' day. This instructs the sheriff to take the defendant and keep him safely so that he may have his body in court on the return day to satisfy the plaintiff. That's the only Latin we're getting, so don't worry. A normal process was for the debtor to be arrested by a bailiff or sheriff's officer and then taken to what was called a sponging house, usually the officer's own house. There the debtor would be persuaded that they should pay their debts, otherwise they faced a court appearance and a debtor's prison. Sponging houses were notoriously uncomfortable, and in um, 1894, Montague Williams remembers sponging houses and is down east and up west. Oh, my dear fellow, you've never seen a sponging house. Ye gods, what a place! I had an apartment they were pleased to call a bedroom to myself, certainly. But if I wanted to breathe the air, I had to do so in a cage in the back garden, iron bars all round and about the size of one of the beast receptacles at the zoo. For this luxury, I had to pay two guineas a day, a bottle of sherry cost a guinea, and a bottle of bass half a crown, and food was on the same sort of economical tariff. And then Dickens describes the same process in the Pickwick Papers. Mr Pickwick is summoned from his bed by Namby, an officer of the sheriffs, and taken to his house in Coleman Street. The coach, having turned into a very narrow and dark street, stopped before a house with iron bars to all the windows, the doorposts of which were graced by the name and title of Namby, Officer to the Sheriffs of London. The inner gate having been opened by a gentleman who was endowed with a large key for the purpose, Mr Pickwick was shown into the coffee room. This coffee room was a front parlour, the principal features of which were fresh sand and stale tobacco smoke. The role of sheriff Sheriff's Office was a lucrative one. The commercial traveller describes how they were wealthy, lived in highly respectable streets and gave dinner parties. And Mr Pickwick had to wait a half an hour or so for Mr Namby, who had a select dinner party and could not on no account be disturbed before. The normal practice was for people to stay for a few days in sponging houses to see if they could raise the money and get out of trouble. So our commercial traveller spent seven days at the house in Bream's buildings before he accepted the inevitable and went to White Cross Street Prison. Pickwick spent less than a day there, Being determined not to pay his debts. And after some discussion with his lawyer, he sets off for the fleet. Imprisonment for debt was originally very different from bankruptcy. Bankruptcy was intended to deal with the normal upheavals of trade. So the law recognises that merchants run certain risks. Ships could sink, warehouses could burn down, and trading partners could default. Bankruptcy gave merchants a way of dealing with these crises by making all their assets available to their creditors, and going through a court process, a trader could get a a clean break and start again. So bankruptcy was restricted to traders who owed large sums of money above, say, £100. We get a glimpse of the bankruptcy process in Nicholas Nickleby with the failure of Mr Mantolini's business, where he goes bankrupt. Imprisonment for debt was, as we've seen, a much cruder mechanism to force smaller debtors to pay up. People who owed as little as £2 could be imprisoned for debt as late as 1827 when the limit was raised to £20. During Dickens' lifetime, the two legal processes came closer together. This began in 1813, where the Court for the Relief of Insolvent Debtors was established. The court allowed debtors to petition to be released on condition that they handed over all their assets to the court and made any future income or assets subject to its jurisdiction. The court appointed a provisional assignee to control the property and a broker to value it. The court's processes were complex and expensive. It cost about £10 to go through the procedure. And there's a wonderful description in the Pickwick Papers, which I'm going to indulge myself by reading. Um, In a lofty room, ill-lighted and worse ventilated, situated in Portugal Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, there sit nearly the whole year round one, two, three or four gentlemen in wigs, as the case may be, with little writing desks before them, constructed after the fashion of those used by the judges of the land, barring the French polish. There's a box of barristers on their right hand, there's an enclosure of insolvent debtors on their left, and there's an inclined plane of most especially dirty faces in the front. These gentlemen are the commissioners of the insolvent court, and the place in which they sit is the insolvent court itself. It is and has been, time out of mind, the remarkable fate of this court to be, somehow or other, held and understood by the general consent of all the destitute, shabby, genteel people in London as their common resort and place of daily refuge. It's always full. The steams of beer and spirits perpetually ascend to the ceiling and, not being condensed by the heat, roll down the walls like rain. There are more old suits of clothes in it at one time than will be offered to sale in all Houndsditch in a 12-month. More unwashed skins and grizzly beards than all the pumps and shaving shops between Tyburn and Whitechapel could render decent between sunrise and sunset. It mustn't be supposed that any of these people have the least shadow of business in or the remotest connection with the place they so invariably attend. If they had, it would be no matter of surprise and the singularity of the thing would cease. Some of them sleep during the greater part of the sitting. Others carry small portable dinners wrapped in pocket handkerchiefs or sticking out of their worn-out pockets, and munch and listen with equal relish. But no one among them was ever known to have the slightest personal interest in any case that was ever brought forward. A casual visitor might suppose this place to be a temple dedicated to the genius of seediness. There is not a messenger or process server attached to it who wears a coat that was made for him, nor a terribly fresh or wholesome-looking man in the whole establishment. But the attorneys who sit at a large bare table below the commissioners are, after all, the greatest curiosities. They have no fixed offices. Their legal business is being transacted in the parlours of public houses or the yards of prisons, where they're repairing crowds and canvass for business after the manner of omnibus cads. They're of a greasy and mildewed appearance, And if they can be said to have any vices at all, perhaps drinking and cheating are the most conspicuous among them. Their residences are usually on the outskirts of the rules, chiefly lying within a circle of one mile from the obelisk in St George's Fields. Their looks are not prepossessing and their manners are peculiar. Beat that for a description. (laughs) (laughs) The court was was a success in that it provided a way out of prison for people who might otherwise have had no escape. But it wasn't successful as a way of recovering unpaid debts. And in 1840, it was estimated that no dividend was paid in 95% of cases. Often the cases end just inconclusively. If you, in terms of the Dickens case, if you look at the London Gazette for 1825, available from the National Archives website, you'll see, you'll see there's a hearing that's being called at Rochester because Richard Newnham, the assignee of John Dickens, had declined to act. But what happened? And Whether the debts were collected seems uncertain. What is certain is that there was deliberate fraud to avoid assets being seized by the court and by creditors. Until Dickens' day, many prisoners were kept in ordinary criminal prisons. They were held in Newgate until 1815 when the City of London opened the new debtors' prison in Whitecross Street. But the great majority of debtors in London were housed in specialist debtors' prisons, the fleet which is the bottom of Farringdon Road and two south of the river in the borough, the King's Bench and the Marshalsea. What's surprising is that these debtors' prisons weren't terrible medieval relics full of dungeons and clanking chains and cobwebs. They might have had cobwebs but in Dickens' day they were mostly modern buildings. The Marshalsea was a brand new building. Um, The one I showed you, was was this is the old building but the one that Dickens knew was built in 1811 and um, in, in Angel Court, near, Borough, near where Borrachub Station now is. It wasn't there then. One of the minor curiosities, curiosities of, of Little Dorrit is that in the period in which it's set, this, this move took place, but Dickens doesn't mention it. Um, White Cross Street was even newer, having been opened in 1815, the King's Bench was older. It was built in 1758 in St. George's Field, south of Borough Station. It was partly burned in the Gordon Riots and then again in 1799. The fleet was destroyed during the Gordon Riots and rebuilt in 1781-2. to two. There was a sort of hierarchy among these prisons and White Cross Street was absolutely at the bottom. This is the common ward in White Cross Street. Um, it was much closer to a, a regular criminal prison than the others. The death death. Slept in large rooms, as you can see, referred to as wards, and these were subdivided into small corrugated iron compartments, each containing a narrow bed and a small sink. The movements of the prisoners were tightly controlled, and visiting hours were limited. Mr. Pickwick's lawyer told him, You can't go to White Cross Street, impossible. There are 60 beds in a ward, and the bolts on 16 hours out of the 24. And Dickens' commercial Traveller describes the iron-clad doors, the barred gates and the beds, which from their size must have been intended for thin schoolboys and their hardness for Trappist monks. However, there are two classes of people in White Cross Street... There are ordinary debtors, and there are debtors who are also citizens of London. So, if you're a citizen of London and um, we're in White Cross Street, you had much more luxurious accommodation. And this is a room reserved for a city, you know, a person who was a citizen of London and a debtor. You might not think it was luxurious, but compared with the, um, the previous room, it, it certainly was. It's a bit like today, you know. If you owe the bank a £1,000, you get into trouble. If the banker banker loses a billion pounds, they get lavish bones. Oh, sorry, never mind. (laughs) The other prisons were slightly better since accommodation was in single or shared rooms, and they offered a range of entertainments and diversions to inmates. Parliamentary committees looking at prisons tended to find that the fleet was in better condition and better run than either the King's Bench or the Marshalsea. The, unlike the, uh, the other prisons which served the main, the main courts, the King's Bench and so on, the Marshalsea served the Palace Court, sorry, there's King's Bench, and there's the Palace Court, which was the, small, the court which the Marshalsea served. It was a very old institution, which by the 19th century just dealt in small debts. Arthur Clenman, the hero of Little Doric, was told by his legal advisor, I should prefer to your being taken on a writ from one of the superior courts, if you have no objection to do me that favour. It looks better. And then there were the admiralty prisoners. A small area in the marshalsea was reserved for a range of seamen who'd been convicted of crimes against naval discipline, refusing to obey orders, and also for people who'd committed offences against admiralty law, smugglers and pirates. Dickens describes the prison within a prison and described how the smugglers habitually consorted with the debtors who received them with open arms. But relations weren't always so good. In the 18th century, the debtors in the Marshalsea petitioned against the corrupting influence of these seafarers, pirates and smugglers. But attitudes change, and by 1815, the Parliamentary Committee was worried about the effect on these young men, warrant officers and midshipmen, of exposure to the riot and licentious behaviour of the other inmates of the Marshalsea. This complaint expresses one of the paradoxes of imprisonment for debt. Deaths weren't criminals. They were imprisoned for purely civil offences. As a consequence, they were fairly leniently treated. As Mr Pickwick discovered, money was in the fleet just what money was out of it, that it would instantly procure him almost anything he desired. It could even buy a sort of freedom. Both the King's Bench and the fleet allowed prisoners to live outside the walls. The fleet had an area around the prison of about a mile and a quarter in in circumference called the Liberty Prisoners who could provide security and pay off a part of their debt could live there. There was also a similar arrangement around the King's Bench called the Rules. In 1776, about a third of prisoners lived outside the King's Bench. Not only was the fleet cleaner and better run than the King's Bench, it also had a further advantage. Persons living within the Rules had access to the London Coffee House and the Belle Sauvage Public House, and these real-life prisoners could drink with the fictional Sam Weller and his father, who hung out there in the Pickwick Papers. The King's Bench rules excluded public houses. Many prisoners carried on their normal trades inside debtors' prisons. Some provided services to other inmates, catering or laundry. Others ran the sporting facilities. The rackets caught in the fleet were let out to prisoners who charged for their use. And Harriet Hart, who was a notoriously difficult prisoner in the Marshalsea, carried on her trade of feather hat making there. So what was life really like for debtors? It's, it's very, really hard to say at this distance. It is a difficult question. There are certainly in the 18th century examples of very cruel treatments, beatings and the use of manacles. In 1784, 15 debtors in Gloucester were sleeping on straw. Things had improved by Dickens' day, although as late as 1811 it was claimed that a prisoner had died of want in the marshalsea. Most prisoners had two sides, the master's side and the common or poor side. Common side prisoners were those without means who had free accommodation in the prison, that's generous, and were eligible for a statutory payment of three shillings and sixpence a week, as well as charity payments. And Dickens tells us there used to be a kind of iron cage in the wall of the fleet prison within which was posted some man of hungry looks who, from time to time, rattled a money box and exclaimed in a mournful voice, Pray remember the poor debtors. Pray remember the poor debtors. This is a picture of begging at the fleet. And in the National Archives, we've got a book called the Begging Great Book, which is in Pris 10.6, if you want to look at it. And it records the pathetically small amount of sums that these people collected on a daily basis from begging in the walls of the the prison. What's interesting is, obviously, people were humiliated by this. This was dreadful. But we know... Some very strange cases, we know that Mr Ledwell was in the King's Bench in 1815. He'd been discharged from his debts, could have gone home, but he quite liked living there and got lots of charity and various alms and continued to live there. I'm not doing anything about him. The master side of the prison was usually far larger. There were 24 common side prisons in the King's Bench and 84 master's side. And although life of the occupants of these rooms wasn't luxurious, it did offer its comforts. The King's Bench fleet and marshalsea all had tap rooms for the sale of wine and beer, while the King's Bench had a coffee house and bake house. In 1776, John Had visits the fleet and describes how the prisoners played at fives, skittles and tennis, and were often joined in their games by porters by, from the nearby Smithfield market. On Monday nights, they had a wine club and on Tuesday nights, a beer club. Mr Pickwick watched people playing rackets during his time in the fleet, and Mr Macorber, who was imprisoned in the King's Bench early one morning, was seen to play a lively game of skittles before noon. So let's have a look. This is what they did in the King's Bench, threw people up in blankets, you know. Yeah. This was before the internet and DVDs, you've got to remember. <laughs> beer was a very sensitive subject, and in 1771, the prisoners in the King's Bench destroyed over 50 barrels of beer, claiming that it had been watered. Even in White Cross Street, the harshest of the debtors' prisons, inmates were allowed to buy a pint of wine or two pints of beer a day. The sale of spirits was banned in prisons, but Mr Pickwick visited a whistling shop in the fleet where prisoners could buy illicit spirits. And this is a a picture of a whistling shop in the fleet. One of the figures in this picture is Lord Cochrane, who we'll, we'll learn rather more than we want to learn later on during the talk. Whether the prisons were cruel or harsh really depends on the attitude of the debtors. It strikes me, said Sam, said Mr Pickwick, leaning over the iron rail at the stairhead, it strikes me, Sam, that imprisonment for debt is scarcely any punishment at all. Think not, sir, inquired Mr Weller. You see how these fellows drink and smoke and roar, replied Mr Pickwick. It's quite impossible that they can mind it much. Oh, that's just the wary thing, sir, rejoined Sam. They don't mind it. It's a regular holiday to them, all porter and skittles. It's Tuthervons as gets done over with this sort of thing. Them down-hearted fellas as can't swig away at the beer nor play at Skittles. Neither of them as would pay if they could and gets low by being boxed up. I'll tell you what it is, sir. Them as is always uh, idling in public houses, it don't damage at all. And them as is always a working when they can, it damages too much. Dickens is careful of really the most heart-stopping moments. And the events of Mr Pickwick's first day in the fleet are well known. "'Oh,' replied Mr Pickwick, looking down a dark and filthy staircase, "'which appeared to lead to a range of damp and gloomy stone vaults beneath the ground. "'And those, I suppose, are the little cellars "'where the prisoners keep their small quantities of coals. "'Unpleasant places to have to go down to, but very convenient, I dare say.' "'Yes, I shouldn't wonder if they was convenient,' replied the gentleman. "'Seeing that a few people live there pretty snug. "'That's the fare, that is.' "'My friend,' said Mr Pickwick, You don't really mean to say that human beings live down in these wretched dungeons, don't I, replied Mr Roker with indignant astonishment. Why shouldn't I? Live, live down there, exclaimed Mr Pickwick. Live down there? Yes, and die down there too very often, replied Mr Roker. And what is that? Who's going to say anything again it? Live down there? Yes, and a very good place it is to live in, ain't it? But I've tried to research these cellars and I cannot find anything about them. There were certainly cellars in the Fleet Prison and they were called Bartholomew's Fair. But I'm 99.9% sure that Dickens never visited them. I can't find any evidence that they were the sort of hell holes which spring into your mind when you read that passage. In the 1780s, they, were, they in the adjacent kitchen and public dining room were rented out to prisoners at between four and eight shillings a week. And when the parliamentary commissioners visit the fleet in 1818, they make no comment at all on these cells. I just think kind of Dickens made it up. The practice of letting out rooms to prisoners was part of the regime which existed in all prisons up to the time of Dickens, not just debtors' prisons but criminal prisons as well, where staff weren't paid salaries. Instead, they earned their incomes by providing services to the prisoners. The turnkey, Mr Roker, rented to Pickwick a carpet, six chairs, a table, a sofa, bedspread, a tea kettle and various small articles at a very reasonable rate of seven and twenty shillings and sixpence a week. Prisoners had to pay fees on admission and discharge, as well as room rents, and these went to the official in charge of the prison, called the marshal or the master. In many cases prisoners were kept in jail because they simply couldn't afford to pay their fees and lodgings. As well as fees, the Marshal of King's Bench got a share of the profits from the sale of beer and the rent for the coffee house and bakery. The more junior staff called turnkeys made money by renting out rooms and furniture. In eighteen fifteen the Marshal of the King's Bench was making a profit of three thousand five hundred a year from the prison. The bulk of his income came from selling the rights to reside outside the prison in the rules. £3,500 a year is probably about £200,000 a year now. The Parliamentary Commissioners of 1815 described the situation in the fleet. The nominal head was the warden, John Ayles. He'd been, imprisoned, he'd been appointed rather in 1759. By 1815, he was an old man and hadn't visited the place since 1804. He contented himself with a salary of £500 a year. The prison was run by his deputy, Mr Nixon, who received a total of 2,600 a year from the fees paid by prisoners, plus the profits of the tap. Out of this, he paid £100 a year to his clerk, Mr Woodruff, who also got a fee of half a guinea for each person allowed to live within the rules. Nixon also employed three turnkeys at half a guinea a week each. They also got a free room. He employed a man called Cryer, who was scavenger and night watchman. He also paid a salary of £10 a year to an old man who was a prisoner and acted as his clerk, and he paid a chaplain £30 a year. He also had to pay costs and legal expenses when a prisoner escaped. His net income was £1,800 a year, or about £104,000 in modern money, plus free accommodation. And everybody who went into prison or who left had to pay fees on admission um, and fees on discharge. One of the curious features of Dess's prisons was the practice known as chummage, and this is described by Dickens in the Pickwick Papers. Accommodation, eh, said that gentleman, consulting a large book. Plenty of that, Mr Pickwick. Your chummage ticket will be on twenty-seven on the 3rd. Oh, said Mr Pickwick. My what did you say? Your chummage ticket, replied Mr Roker. You're up to that. Not quite, replied Mr Pickwick with a smile. Well, said Mr Roker, it's as plain as Salisbury. You'll have a chummage ticket upon twenty-seven in the third, and then, as is in the room, will be your chums. Are there many of them? inquired Mr Pickwick dubiously. Three, replied Mr Roker. Mr Pickwick coughed. One of them's a parson, said Mr Roker, filling up a little piece of paper as he spoke. Another's a butcher. Eh? exclaimed Mr Pickwick. A butcher, repeated Mr Roker, giving the nib of his pen a tap on the desk to cure it of a disinclination to Mark. What a thorough-paced goer he used to be, surely. So the theory was that if, if all the rooms in prison were full and occupied by one person, then the next prisoner to arrive would be directed to one of the rooms. The existing occupant of the room could either accept this new chum or he could offer to pay him out. That's to say he could pay him five shillings a week And the new prisoner would then go and rent a space in another room. As a consequence, the richer prisoners, like Mr Pickwick, could have rooms to themselves, while the poorer ones would have to sleep eight or nine to a room. So the kind of lavish space of the room that the Dorrit's live in is just, you know, nonsense. In the fleet, the system seems to have been fair, with newcomers being allocated to rooms in strict rotation, it was far different in the King's Bench, where there were widespread abuses. Some of the turnkeys and waiters at the coffee house held rooms in the prison, in which they, which they let out to prisoners, while Mr Gore, a debtor, had acquired sole use of a room, which he let out while he lived outside the prison in the rules. Mr Pickwick's horrified response to sharing a room with three other men, including a butcher, represents one view of life in debtors' prisons. Some academics have argued that there was a real effort by the wealthier debtors to ensure that the social life of the prison replicated the nice distinctions of gentility, fortune and class that obtained in the outside world. In 1814, debtors in Newgate complained that persons of the first respectability whose walk-in life exempts them from depraved associates and with whom such association would greatly add to the pain and punishment of confinement. And Little Dorrit is full of examples of this sort. There's a very famous scene where Mr Dorrit is deeply offended when the plasterer offers him halfpenny coins. And Dorrit himself spends a lot of time maintaining his status and social position, constantly reminding Amy that he's, he's a gentleman. But there's a different view, which is also set out in Dickens, which is that gradual exposure to poverty and despair did much to erode social distinctions. One of the points about Victorian Britain is you could tell people's occupation and social standing, by the way they dressed. But listen to Dickens' description of the visitors coming to see relatives in the Marshalsea. The shabbiness of these attendants upon shabbiness, the poverty of these insolvent waiters upon insolvency was a sight to see. Such threadbare coats and trousers, such fusty gowns and shawls, such squashed hats and bonnets, such boots and shoes, such umbrellas and walking sticks, never were seen in rag fair. All of them wore the cast-off clothes of other men and women, were made up of patches and pieces of other people's individuality and had no sartorial experience of their own. And Dickens' commercial traveller describes how in White Cross Street, the most clean and trim-looking among us became as careless and dirty as the rest. There were very small numbers of staff in these prisons. The King's Bench had a marshal, deputy marshal, three or four turnkeys, a clerk of the papers and some tip staffs who took people to court and back. And in these circumstances, the staff had no control over what went on inside the prison. Their only role was to prevent escapes. And there are descriptions, including those in Dickens, of how new prisoners had to sit and be inspected by the turnkeys so they would be recognised among the throngs of visitors, lawyers and others who crowded into the prisons. And there's Mr Dickens sitting for his portrait. All the officials of the prison are, are looking at him so they remember what he looks like in case he tries to escape. Life inside the prisons was pretty much regulated by the prisons themselves. In the King's Bench in the 18th century, there were two elected bodies, one for the common side and one for the master's side. They tried to keep order and arbitrate quarrels, while the master's side corporation also supervised the letting of rooms, arranged cleaning and even enforced, we- enforced weights and measures rules in the shops. Dickens described a similar fellowship in Little Dorrit, but by his day, it seems to have been more of a drinking club. In Whitecross Street in the 1860s, each ward elected a prisoner to act as caterer. He bought the food and collected subsistence money from his fellow prisoners. The caterer's accounts were very carefully scrutinised by a committee of debtors. It seems to have worked well with an abundant quantity of plain food being provided, a breakfast of egg, bacon, bread and tea, a cooked dinner at 2pm and tea with cold meats in the evening. Little Dorrit was born in the marshalsea and her mother was attended by the drunken and shabby doctor, one of the prisoners. This isn't a piece of literary exaggeration. In 1815, neither the the King's Bench nor the fleet had any medical staff and both relied on the services of doctors who had the misfortune to get themselves imprisoned for debt. So a bit difficult when they didn't have a doctor. In 1815, Mr Burnett, a surgeon, was confined in the King's Bench and provided medical services to his fellow inmates. Quite large numbers of people were imprisoned. On one day in 1826, there were 2,861 people in debtors' prisons, of whom 1,700 were in the four main London jails. Most people were like Mr McCaw and Mr Pickwick, um, in that they stayed in jail for a very short time, most for less than six months. There were a few unfortunates, like Mr Dorrit, who stayed in prison for years. In 1844, only 49 prisoners had been in the Queen's prison for more than three years, but of those, seven had been imprisoned in the 1720s, and one unfortunate in 1812. The debtors seemed mostly to have come from the ranks of small tradesmen. The prisoners in Whitecross Street in 1828 included a hat maker, a shoemaker, a milkman, a confectioner, a horse dealer, a printer, an oyster shopkeeper, eight labourers, a poor widow and a half pay captain. Those of you who read Smollett and remember Peregrine Pickle might remember the list of the people found in the coffee house of the fleet. An officer, alchemist, attorney, three proprietors, three underwriters, a brace of poets, a baronet and a knight commander of the Bath. A few well-known people found their ways into debtor's prisons. Sheridan, the playwright, was under arrest for debt in 1814. Hogarth's father was imprisoned for debt. Theodore von Newloff who was briefly King of Corsica and until recently had a pub in Soho named after him, spent times in the King's Bench. I think it's now called the Slug and Ferret or something. It was called the King of Corsica. The most famous inmate of the King's Bench in the early 19th century was Lord Cochrane. He was a naval hero, but he got involved in a famous stock exchange fraud of 1814 and as a result was imprisoned in the King's Bench. This is how he did it. And he writes this kind of very... Self aggrandizing autobiography how he describes he'd got some rope and he climbed over from one wall to the other and he climbed down the wall and then he let go of the rope and he kind of knocked himself out but woke up just in time before dawn broke and escaped and that was that except that none of the staff noticed that he'd escaped he escaped on a on a Monday 6th of March it was <laughs> in in 1815 and nobody noticed. And then on Thursday, and this is like the civil servant's ultimate nightmare, what I'm about to describe, you know. On the Thursday, a committee of MPs decided to conduct an inspection of the prison. <laughs> and they said to themselves, Let's go and see our mate Lord Cochrane. We know he's in here. On the cell door, no answer. Open the door. No Lord Cochrane. Complete kind of nightmare for the Governor. Anyway, eventually Cochrane gives himself up. And he pays his debts and he goes to Chile, where he becomes a naval hero in Chile. And there's a memorial window to him and there's still a ship in the Chilean Navy named after him. One of the the other alternatives to going to a debtor's prison, if you had enough money, was to flee abroad. And many slightly more wealthy debtors fled abroad, particularly to Boulogne. In 1857, there were 7,000 English people living in Boulogne, about a quarter of the town's population. Harold Macmillan gave some of the flavour of this world in his famous speech on selling the family silver. In my young days, I had friends who failed to make the distinction between capital and income, and they got on well. Then the crash came, and they were forced to retire, either to some dingy lodging house in Boulogne, or if the trustees were more generous, to more decent accommodation in Baden-Baden. Dickens knew English exile communities well, as he frequently travelled to the continent. Little D- Dorrit's views of Venice, and you may not know she went to Venice, but she did, um, expressed his own opinions. It appeared on the whole to Little Dorrit that the same society in which they lived resembled a superior sort of marshalsea. Numbers of people seemed to come abroad pretty much as people had come into the prison through debt, idleness, relationships, curiosity, and a general unfitness for getting on at home. This was certainly true of those who lived in Boulogne, so many of them got into further trouble um, that the local debtor's prison there was called L'Hotel Anglais. So it was also true of one of the villains of Nicholas Nickleby, Sir Mulberry Hawke. He lived abroad for some years, courted and caressed, and in high repute as a fine, dashing fellow, ultimately returned to this country he was strained into jail for debt and there perished miserably, as such high spirits generally do. Lots of other famous people um, lived abroad to escape their creditors. Emma Hamilton, Nelson's mistress, she was in the King's Bench twice and then fled abroad to Calais, where she died in 1814. And I think there's a statue of her there. Another was George Hudson, the Railway King. He, in 1846, he had a quarter of the railways in Britain, but then he discovered it was all based on fraud, and so he was heavily in debt and he had to flee abroad. But... He was an MP and he couldn't be arrested while the House was sitting, so he led this curious life. He would come to London where the Parliament was sitting and then the day before he would flee to, flee to the continent and then when the session started again he'd come back. But in 1859 he lost his seat and he returned home in 1865 and spent three months as a debtor in New York prison until he was rescued by kind friends. Two of the most extraordinary exiles were the gentleman sportsmen, Nimrod and... And John Netton. Nimrod was a, was a writer. He, um, he was a kind of fox-hunting correspondent. And he was extremely lavish. He just, you know, spent huge amounts of money. And according to Surtees, he demanded the best of clothes, the best of wines, the best of food, the best of horses and all of this was paid by his magazine's proprietor, the sporting magazine. When the proprietor dies, Nimrod's out of a job, he has to flee to France, and he spends his years over in France continuing to write. And one of the things he wrote over there was the life of John Mitten. Mitten was the ultimate English exile. He inherited an income of £10,000 a year at the age of one, and he set out from an early age to waste it. He was expelled from Westminster and Harrow, and um, in a short, after a short time in the army, where he gambled away much of his money, he settled down to a life of hunting, shooting, and dressing up. At one time, he owned 152 pairs of breeches and trousers, and a pet bear, which he bought from a travelling showman, and he one occasionally rode it into the dining room wearing full hunting costume. By 1831, he'd spent his fortune, and he had to flee to Calais, where he met Nimrod. And, he, and his main occupation there was drinking and he spent the time in a variety of French debtors' prisons. His downfall came when he set fire to his nightshirt to cure the hiccups. I wouldn't recommend you try this at home. please. Apparently it worked, but he was badly burnt and pretty much never recovered. According to Nimrod, it was brandy, 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 noon and night, which of course drove him to madness and a disposition to insult the French people, and this made it necessary to remove him. He went back to London where he died um, in, in the King's Bench prison. One of the things which Dickens doesn't mention is the large extent to which prisoners were helped by charities. And from 18, the 1750s, the Craven Street Society was working with St Thomas's Hospital in London to secure the release of poor debtors. They did this by persuading the creditors to agree to accept reduced payments. In 1751, they paid out £34 to secure the release of 14 prisoners whose total debts had amounted to £145. In 1772, this work was given a huge boost when James Neale, a jeweller from St James's Street, set up the Society for the Discharge and Relief of Persons Imprisoned for Small Debts. It was a large name, so they called it the Thatched House Society, from the tavern in St James's Street where they met. Neil's first fundraising event was a success. He persuaded the charismatic preacher, the Reverend William Dodds, to preach sermon in the Charlotte Street Chapel. Dodds was a bit like John McCurrick. He was a kind of hung around racetracks, and he was known as the macaroni parson because of his flamboyant dress. And they raised a lot of money and spent it just releasing prisoners. The over, I've read the, the accounts of the Society, and the overwhelming impression is just, it's just a hugely humane organisation. In the first year, it provides shirts and shoes to Simon Masters and John Davis, who it released from the borough counter. It also helped an East Indian man, Francis St MacLeod, a foreign officer, Richard Dupont, who had no friend in England, John Hughes, who was deaf, and Richard Richards, a black seaman. It also reported that Mary Reddall, whose fees it had paid, had been brought to bed of a fine boy, and it awarded her an extra pound. By 1835, the Society had secured the release of 35,000 debtors at a total cost of 164000 and it still had nearly £100,000 in assets. Although it was a success, the Society's founders, Dodds and, and Neil, got into bad trouble. Um, Dodds forged a bond... Um, on behalf of his pupil, the Earl of Chesterfield, and Chesterfield said he'd never signed a bond, and Dodds was prosecuted and hanged. Neil died in 1814, but there was a sort of scandal in the papers where it was revealed that he'd, he'd beaten his son, who'd fled to the West Indies where he died, and so the plans for a statue for him were dropped and, you know, his reputation went down. Dickens doesn't mention this charitable work because it doesn't add to the dramatic st- story he's trying to tell. From the beginning of the 19th century, it was obvious to some people that imprisoning people for debt was pointless and there were a series of insolvent debtors' acts which were passed between 1813 um, which allowed increasing numbers of prisoners to be released after short periods. By 1843, the Marshalsea was up for sale and in 1846, the fleet closed, leaving the King's Bench, renamed the King's Prison, and Whitecross Street to house London's debtors. Finally, in 1861, White Cross Street became the only prison for London debtors. Imprisonment for debt was finally abolished in 1869, ending centuries of misery. Although debtors who had the means to pay their debt and didn't do so could still be incarcerated for up to six weeks, and fraudulent debtors were still liable to be jailed. What remains? Well, Whitecross Street has de- Completely vanished. The fleet, and that's what it looks like now. It's city offices just off Fleet Street. The people who work in those offices know far more about debt than the people in the fleet prison. <laughs> <laughs> the King's Bench is now social housing. That's what it looks like. I'll tell you a story about that. I went to take these photographs, some photographs of where the King's Bench used to be. And this bloke is a big bloke, and he's got sort some of attack dog, and he comes up to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he, he says, what... What are, you do, what are you doing here, mate? What are you doing here taking photographs? And I think, oh, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. And I thought quickly, and I said, oh, my dad used to live around here. And I, I thought I'd send him some pictures. And he said, what was his name? I said, oh, it was Sid, Sid Thomas. He said, oh, I think I knew him. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of patted me on the shoulder. Let me go. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Anyway, you can go and see that. It's If you go to Borough, Borough Station and walk south you'll come upon where the King's Bench used to be, but I wouldn't advise it. And then, finally, the Marshalsea. When, um, when he finished Little Dorrit, Dickens went on a nostalgic trip to the Marshalsea. This is what he saw. He describes the scene in the preface. Whosoever goes into Marshalsea Place, turning out of Angel Court, leading to Bermondsey, will find his feet on the very paving stones of the extinct Marshalsea jail. We'll see its narrow yard to the right and to the left, very little altered, if at all, except that the walls were lowered when the place got free. We'll look upon the rooms in which the debtors lived, and we'll stand among crowding ghosts of so many miserable years. And we can still walk down Angel Court, and we can still follow Dickens' footprints. That's the wall of the Marshalsea and the gatehouse. This is the the only surviving relics of, of the London's debtors' prisons. And across the road... (laughs) memorial to little Dorrit that's all I've got to say thank you very much this event was recorded live on the 13th of November 2008 at the National Archives Q this podcast is copyright to the National Archives all rights reserved